This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And one of the big stories that we talked about on this show quite often, especially during the first months of the pandemic, was a group of companies that seemingly were doing even better than had been expected. Companies like Home Depot, Lowe's, and many others during the heights of the pandemic. The stay-at-home market led to some incredible moves. Barry Ritholtz is the chairman and chief investment officer with Ritholtz Wealth Management. Barry, great to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. And so let me start larger scope here because I think there was so much surprise when some of these companies, I mentioned Home Depot, Lowe's, you had Peloton, you had Netflix, obviously, uh, that uh, benefited from the at-home pattern that we were in. They did so well. Should we even have been surprised with what occurred that some of these companies were going to do pretty well? You know, the the thing that I think most people were surprised about is when they went out in, uh, into the world, whether it was masking up and going into a supermarket or, or even just getting in their car and driving, is the world they saw was doing very, very poorly. But what they witnessed in the stock market was the polar opposite. It was screaming higher. And I think that's primarily because much of what we experience day to day are local, small, um, privately owned businesses. And and the stock market are these giant multinational companies that they, you know, follow a very different rhythm. They, They dance to a different drummer. Hence why when you have so many people at home, you started to see people want to do their own home improvement projects, and then companies like Home Depot and Lowe's were doing very, very well. That's right. And and when you look at the logistical skills that are needed to deliver, whether it's plywood or, or fresh bananas, certain companies were able to take their expertise and pivot towards home home delivery. So... Uh, you know, we, we know Amazon is outstanding at that, but look at how quickly companies like Walmart and Target uh, adapted, and some some did their own delivery through mail, some used Instacart or other types of, of delivery services, but the firms that were able to very quickly satisfy the burgeoning demand of, of millions of people stuck at home um, they thrived in that environment. They were very adaptable and, and succeeded. So that word adaptable also plays an interesting segment, I think, with a company like Peloton because uh, they obviously saw a surge uh, you know, in the early months because people couldn't get to the gym. They didn't want to be outside doing their exercises, and so you saw more people wanting to do these at-home work, uh, work routines, workout routines. But then again, they didn't adapt to when kind of the pandemic was starting to ease and more people were going to go back to their normal routines. You know, the the interesting thing about this and the, and the ramifications of Peloton is a perfect um, case study. Uh, the U.S. is primarily a services-based economy. Before the pandemic, we're about 61% services and 39% actual goods. And when you're locked at, at home, when you're stuck working from home, educating from home, playing from home, you can't do the usual things you do. You're, you're not traveling for vacation. You're not going out to the movies or to a theater. You're not going out to eat. All of the various things that we think of as service-based have to 
get replaced with physical goods. And, and so a perfect example is going to the gym. It, it should have been clear to, to people, and maybe this is a little bit of hindsight bias, but it should have been clear to people that eventually the pandemic would end and eventually Peloton would stop selling record numbers of, of bikes and treadmills. Um, for them, the good news is they have a pretty steady revenue stream from their monthly uh, subscriptions, and not everybody is returned to the gym. A lot of folks are, are staying at home on their rowers and bikes and, and treadmills. But the, the issues that that has created a couple of years later is that most of what we're seeing in terms of inflation are directly tied to, to the demand for goods over services. And the stats are, are pretty substantial. Global GDP, the production of goods, surged 5%. You know, in an in a economic space that's usually measured in, in fractions of a percent, 5% is giant. But the problem is the demand went up 20%. And so that overwhelming demand has caused not only inflationary pressures, which will eventually abate, but we see it in all of the supply chain tangles and the logistic yeah. problems in getting goods from where they're manufactured, very often abroad, to consumers yeah. in the United States. Obviously, the, the advancements we've had in technology over the last couple of decades really benefited uh, the, the globe during this time of the pandemic. Uh, when you think about the conferencing platforms that we were using to stay connected with employees, the other one that you know I I think is incredible is DocuSign, a company like that where you could be signing all kinds of different agreements and you didn't have to be in person anymore. Yeah, the the really fascinating thing uh, is that it's not that the world completely changed; it's that we accelerated previous trends. So whether it's DocuSign for, for executing documents when you're not physically present, Teladoc so you can actually have a doctor, you know, evaluate you, even if you're not physically in the office. Uh, we all are familiar with Zoom and FaceTime and Google Hangouts and all that. Um, all of those things existed for years and years and years before the pandemic struck. I think what it did is it made people much more comfortable with the virtual environment, and it probably brought 2030 back to 2020. It probably accelerated yep. the technological installation and advancement uh, by a decade. And we still have yet to see what the ramifications of that are going to be um, on two of the biggest markets in, in, in the country, real estate and labor. So you kind of lead me into my final question for you is that, what do you say to investors now, two years into this pandemic, about all that occurred and maybe what they need to think about coming out the other side? So so the first lesson going back to the beginning of the pandemic, and it was something I had written in a column for Bloomberg um, at the end of March, beginning of April, was, number one, don't assume externalities will change what the market is going to do, what the um, overall endpoint of, of, of investments are. And, you know, people who panicked in February and March and sold stocks, they regretted that. Historically, what we're seeing in terms of uh, the Russian invasion in Ukraine, when we look at the history of geopolitical events, they tend to cause wobbles briefly, and then the market goes back to what 
what it's doing was doing previously. So one one lesson is to put these big emotional events into a little long term context. The the second lesson, and I think this is the more challenging one because it's still being written. Uh, look, we we were locked down more or less for uh, let's call it eighteen of the past twenty four months. You had a brief respite in the summer, and then Delta came up, and then when that ended, you had a brief respite before Omicron. Um, but over the course of the past two years, my firm, we, we have about 50 employees. We, we hired five or six, maybe even seven people over that period, many of whom we have not met in person until very recently, some of whom <laughs> we still haven't shook hands. We still haven't met in person. And so the, these people are located all across the country, the big question for labor and indirectly for real estate is what does this mean for um, having to be local to where your job is? If, if the world is changing yeah. to the point where we're not just outsourcing manufacturing to China, if I can hire someone in Iowa uh, or Nebraska for 20% less than I can in San Francisco or New York and get a very high-quality employee – what does this mean for the job market? What does this mean for labor? And think about all of the pricey real estate in places like New York, Boston, D.C., Chicago, San Francisco, etc. What What does that mean to that? So I think we're still, uh, if the pandemic were to end today, I think we're going to still be dealing with the fallouts and adjustments to how things have accelerated and changed. For a good couple of years, the the world a decade from now is going to look very different uh, than it does today. Barry, great insight. Thanks very much. My pleasure. Anytime. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.